What's up, Biker Bar? I'm Robert, and this is my YouTube live stream podcast. If you guys aren't familiar, the Biker Bar is on every Sunday at 5 p.m. PST, and uh, it's it's almost always at, at that time, but every once in a while we'll have a little reschedule, but today we're, we're loud and live and clear at 5, and uh, so I, ha I have just recently like within the last half hour i got out of my truck from driving back from sea otter and down there at sea otter it's this huge bike festival if you guys aren't familiar with it but there is like thousands of people there and hundreds of different bike related like mountain bike related some of it's road bike related we won't talk about them too much but mostly mountain bike related stuff or a lot of mountain bike related stuff helmets gear all kinds of stuff and um had a really great time down there and it was really something else to see how this community has gotten to the size that it has and in in saying that it it really kind of sets the stage for who we have on the show tonight some of you guys may or may not be familiar with the name charlie kelly it's definitely one that probably goes a little bit under the radar compared to uh some of the other names in in mountain biking especially for you young guys however way back when and we'll find out the dates exactly this guy charlie kelly decided to start running a little race called the repack and mm -hmm. if you're not familiar with it there is a, a documentary called clunkers k-l-u-n-k-e-r-z you can check it out on amazon and uh, it gives you the the story that we're going to talk about which is basically the story of how mountain biking kind of got started, so to speak. It, it, it is, I'll go ahead and let, let Charlie introduce himself. Charlie, you want to go ahead and say hello to everybody? Sure. By the way, uh, the uh, just on the subject of the Sea Otter, before we move away from that, uh, it's now the biggest bicycle event in the country. Um, and something like 10,000 people compete in various disciplines there. It, it's, it's an amazing event. Uh, and I actually have a connection to that. Uh, I didn't go this year because uh, Joe Breeze went and I had to help out uh, the museum in uh, Marin County uh, while he was gone. But uh, the Sea Otter started in 1990 and I was the announcer for the very first Sea Otter event. And uh, it was not the event that it is now. It was just a regional thing. But as you know, it takes place in the, Mon uh, the uh, Laguna Seca Raceway. And they gave me the use of the Laguna Seca Raceway PA system, which is designed to be heard over motor racing. It's the loudest thing that I've ever got to use. And I had a cordless <laughs> microphone and I just cruised around on my bike and wherever I saw something worthy of announcing, well, I would announce it. And I'm telling you, they heard it in Los Angeles. So, uh, uh, but uh, that uh, the, the speakers are about a quarter mile away and there's a significant delay and uh, if you start listening to yourself, you'll forget to talk. But yeah. <laughs> uh, it was it was really fun because if I had a thought, I shared it with the world. Um, and uh, since then, of course, it's turned into an amazing event. I, I've been there the last few years, uh, and I just love it. Uh, it just I, everybody I know, well, about five hundred of my closest friends are there. So there you, uh, go. you know, and it's a great party. If you haven't been there, uh, geez. It's worthy of traveling a long way to be at, and uh, I'm sure that you agree. Uh, it's 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 something not to be missed if you have the opportunity. Definitely, so, uh, I 100% I, I agree. And and so, you and races go back a long way, right? 
Well, uh, I I had to explain this. Well, I do it a lot at the museum uh, when I give the guided tours. But uh, back in the day, uh, we had evolved our cruiser bikes to the point where there were gears on them. Okay, and that meant that you could ride up, you know, a hill. And we're tough bicycle racing kids, kids thirty years old, but uh, kids now. Um, and uh, uh, there was a very interesting phenomenon that took place, and that is that. You always start by riding up because the towns are at the bottoms and where we live, there's lots of hills and ridges and so forth. And whatever you ride up, eventually you're on top of it. There's no more up to ride up and nobody just turns around and, you know, okay, no, you throw the bikes down, you break out the water bottles and the lunch and the Frisbee and you hang around for a while. But this, this is the phenomenon that emerged. And that is at some point, all the bikes would be laying there and, somebody to look over at his bike and then you didn't have to say hey guys why don't we risk our lives in an undeclared race on $15 junk bikes because it was going to happen <laughs> anyway and uh, these undeclared impromptu uh, nothing to win races uh, well when it's two or three people okay it's kind of a goof but as more and more of these converted cruisers were getting out there on the trails. Now our rides were like, you know, 10, 12 people. And there was one guy in our crew who was basically NFL size, six foot four, 220, and uh, also a sociopath, which is uh, a <laughs> advantage. So, uh, so uh, once he got on the front, it was over because it was worth your life to try to come around the guy. And of course, on any kind of a downhill, even on a fire road, uh, the part of the road that you want is about one bike ride. It's wide. It's it's really hard to come around somebody that's got the good groove, you know. And so, so you guys originally, when it's just you and your buddies going up there having having fun for the day, when you yeah. guys would race, it would just be like a mass start. Everybody mass start, and it out. wasn't declared, and there was nothing to win, and nobody, you know, because this one guy was always going to win it, and that started a bunch of smack talking, which is like, <laughs> you know, guys uh, are known to do that. Well, yeah, and uh, and so. Uh, you know, people were saying, well, gosh, I know I'm quicker than him. I'm just not meaner than him and nearly not nearly as big. And so we talked this to death. I mean, you know, sometimes you wind up pushing the bike for 20 minutes because who cares? We're tough guys. And and sitting around on top of those hills, we talked everything to death. And and because we were also road racers we're, and we're familiar with, uh, you know, road racing uh, uh, technique, we knew that they call uh, the time trial the race of truth because you don't, nobody else can mess you up. And there are no tactical or strategic uh, consideration to be made in time trial. You just go as fast as you can, as far as you can. And so uh, we, uh, you know, agreed. I don't know how long we agreed on it, but yeah, time trial was really the way to identify who was the fastest downhiller. So there's some pretty uh, big names in this group that you're calling we as well. Well, uh, yeah, Gary Fisher and Joe Breeze are probably the other ones uh, uh, of note. Uh, Gary was my roommate at the time. And uh, so uh, we... Uh, so you guys were just living in like the Marin County area, just doing doing what for, for a living at the time? Well, let's see. I was a rock band roadie. There you and, go. <laughs> uh, and uh, Gary was a Trustafarian. 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I gotta ask, what's a trustafarian? That means your parents supply, uh, you know, support you and and hope that eventually you'll do something useful. That, uh, about what year trust, is this? The trust fund, trust fund is kind of from the uh, from trust fund thing, you know. Trust yeah, fund. yeah, I got it. But anyway, so but, about what year uh, was Gary, this? Just to kind this of put was, it in uh, Well, Gary and I started being roommates uh, uh, around. Uh, let's see, Gary moved in with me around 1973. I uh, know about, yeah, 72 or 73. Uh -huh. And we shared a house, uh, uh, and then we got kicked out of that house, and we moved into another one 50 yards away. We didn't even have to use a truck to move, you know. Uh, <laughs> we just uh, walked up the street there. And uh, uh, so we, we shared a house in San Anselmo, uh, and there were uh, several other third roommates that shared the house, but Gary and I pretty much went the distance. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, uh, Gary and I were pretty much joined at the hip for about 12 years. So you guys uh, are up there, you're starting to decide you're going to do these time trials. Well, uh, but you know, how do you do that when there's no communication? Well, we had, we had picked the hill that we would use, which we called repack and, uh, backing up a little bit. It's called repack because one trip down it with your coaster brake bike and, uh, smoked the grease in the hub and you had to repack the hub with grease. So, uh, uh, and uh, as you know, that's explained a number of times in the film, but, uh, but that's the origin of the name Repack. It's uh, 1,300 feet of elevation difference in a little under two miles. Uh, average slope is 14%. Uh, guys 14% is hard, hard to ride just, up. <laughs> just to paint the picture for people, when he said cruisers, I mean, it, it, the bikes that they were riding back then generally look like what a beach cruiser looks like today. Right. Well, uh, by by 1976, we had added uh, gears uh, and extra brakes. Uh, so by by 1976, uh, uh, there was kind of a maybe a couple of dozen of these uh, modified cruisers where you had the 10-speed gears on them, and uh, you added a front brake to give you a little more control on the hills. Uh, but like I say, we had all these. Every race was like undeclared, no rules, just go for it. But uh, what we, we decided the time trial would be the way to find out who's the fast person. And uh, uh, so I agreed that I would handle the timing. And on October 21st, 1976, I went up on top of Repack with uh, about six of my friends. And we, we had this race. And, uh, and uh, my, what, our third roommate at the time, a guy named Alan Barnes, won the race. And... Uh, then we found out something very, uh, very interesting uh, that, uh, well, there's a reason why they play the other 161 baseball games, you know, and the reason is that if you lost the first one, you'd like a shot at winning one. <laughs> the other reason is that if you like to play baseball, you want to play as much baseball as you can. Right. But it turned out that that first race didn't settle anything. It started something that hasn't ended yet. Yeah. Uh, because... First, everybody that didn't win, maybe five or six other people, said, well, we'd like to do it again, right? And the one guy who won it, he goes, well, I'm the universal champion, and that's decided. And everybody goes, well, are you going to retire undefeated, or are you going to defend that? He goes, what do you mean defend? I thought was universal forever championship. Well, <laughs> we're going up there again, and you can either be there or not. You know, <laughs> you're either and, relinquishing uh, your title or, right, or right. somebody's or, or you're going right. to fight to keep it. <laughs> you only got the title as long as until uh, the next championship. So. So the first so anyway, race was about what you said, about eight guys, six, seven, eight guys. Well, uh, it was uh, 
I don't have the 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 sheet the the results of the first race. We didn't even keep them because hey, who cares? You know, this is a one time goof. But so it's just you and your buddies. You're like, hey, let's 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 settle this shit talking once and for all. We're gonna right. do this well, race. I have so, I, I actually have the handwritten records of every race that took place after that. After um, that, yeah. But uh, five days later, on October 26th, we're back up on the hill with the same people, with six people uh, racing for that elusive title, and this time a different guy won it. Well, that means they win it, and it turns out that there are a lot of variables that we hadn't thought of, and part of the one of the variables is that these bikes weren't dependable, and if you made it, and also you had to not crash, so your bike had to work all the way, and you had a not have any mishaps on the way, but uh, turns out that there are a lot of ways to lose the race and only one way to win it. And uh, so different people won it, uh, or a different guy won the second one. Four days after that, we're back up on the hill again, and it's really hard to convey how completely this activity took over our lives because this was the most adrenaline-pumping thing that I had ever taken part in. And I was a, a skier, you know, at the same time. But the thing about skiing is that if you go for it as hard as you can downhill, you're exhausted in less than a minute. I mean, skiing really, really exhausts you very quickly. And the downhill, well, it, five minutes is about the average, well, a good time, but uh, five minutes is a long time to leave that adrenaline pump wide open. And uh, I mean, you can't, it's hard to find a wave you can surf for five minutes. It's, you can't skydive for five minutes, so you know it's like <laughs> it's a wide open adrenaline pump sport that uh, that really lets you get some duration out of that. And um, by the third race, some guys are starting to show up from other towns. I mean, I don't even, you know, I guess we talked about it a lot. You know, hey, look, we really had some fun. But by the third race, people are starting to show up from out of town. And after the fourth of those races, I thought, well. We're using a pretty crude timing system because it just clocks off the wall and who knows how accurate they are. So how would how would you guys know who like how would you start? Like did you have like Okay, here's uh here's how the timing works. Uh and that was really if if I had any genius, it's like it's thinking this up, which really didn't seem like genius, but okay. We had two clocks and we don't know how accurate they were, but they were the clocks that we used. Just regular clocks, you know, from the house. Mm -hmm. And with a second hand. And so we'd synchronize the clocks at the top of the at the top of the hill. Then we make a list of the starting times of everybody that's there, five or six people, not many. And so, okay, Bobby, you're starting off at 9:26 on the clock. Uh, you know, uh, Alan, you're starting off at 9:28. Two-minute intervals, right? Mm -hmm. And then we write it all down. We make another copy of that list, and one guy jumps on his bike and rides to the bottom of the hill uh, with a clock and the list. Right. So uh, when a rider comes across, he says, okay, he came across at 9.33 and 22 seconds. And he just looks at the start time, does a little, you know, math. And uh, and there you go. And he can, uh, you know, determine uh, at least within the accuracy of those clocks. And since we're using the same clocks for everybody, well, you know, I mean, it doesn't really matter how accurate they were. I'm pretty sure that they were within two or three seconds of yeah, yeah. real accurate time. I was always wondering how you guys did that. I wasn't sure if you uh, used walkie-talkies or you had like no. a like a 
some kind of gun or something that you would shoot no. and it'd be like, okay, that's when he starts the stopwatch or whatever. That that's no, actually no, that I, is a I, pretty good idea. So okay, but after about the fourth race, I thought, well, you know, it's kind of if I'm gonna keep doing this, we need some really good timing. So I went to a sporting goods store and I said, Hey, I need a couple of stopwatches. And I only thing I'd ever seen as a stopwatch up to then was, you know, the old school with a button on the top, uh -huh. round thing. Well, the guy goes, man, these came in today. Digital stopwatches, they time to a hundredth of a second. And they are absolutely accurate. And I said, I need two of those. And, uh, uh, okay, a couple of things uh, grew out of that. First, I, having spent some real money on the tools to put on these races, well, I might as well put on some races to justify the expense, right? And then <laughs> so what second, was the expense? It was a couple of bucks. Well, they, yeah, and by the way, that was $150 for the pair of clocks in 1976, probably equivalent to three or $400 right now. So, I mean, you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, a real outlay. stopwatch would cost that much, you know? Right, now right. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but then we had really accurate timing, and... Uh, uh, and I had a friend, he worked uh, for Lucasfilm. He'd been a roadie with me uh, when, uh, in that part of my life. And he was absolutely dependable uh, because you needed a guy that was going to ride from top to bottom without crashing or because you got no communication. They've got to depend that there's a guy at the bottom of the hill that is ready to receive the finishers because once, once that guy leaves, you have no more communication. So... Uh, did they not have walkie-talkies then, or you just well, you guys I mean, just they existed, it, like, but that's well, too who has that stuff? But right. Also, <laughs> the the terrain that we're in is really hilly, and I mean, uh, you needed some really expensive equipment if you were. I mean, you got two miles in really hilly terrain. Yeah, you know, uh, so we never even considered, you know, communications. Uh, later on, uh, <laughs> a couple of years later. Uh, I had a, I have a friend, I went riding with him the other day as a Grateful Dead roadie, and he had access to all kinds of really cool communication equipment, FM uh, walkie-talkies, and they oh, were yeah. great. We used those uh, uh, later on, but not not early on in the going. So, so when you got the stopwatches, then did you guys had to change your, your system of, of, of how, you, how you recorded the races, right? Well, right, because instead of saying, okay, at uh, 10.02, this guy leaves, well, I just start the clocks together, and I say the first rider goes off at ten minutes. Ah, uh, stop, okay. Stopwatch, you know. Right. Uh, and uh, so, I mean, you didn't have to do even the math because these uh, these watches have a a, uh, a split timer, right? Yeah. So you can you can stop the time, write it down, but the clock keeps going, and then you right. just like you know uh, turn off the split, and uh, and the clock keeps timing. So uh, really, really cool devices. I mean, uh, and um, by about our fourth or fifth race, we got guys coming over from Berkeley. How did you guys even find out about us? We never heard about you guys. Yeah. Uh, so these are other dudes that have been doing the same kind of thing, just riding uh, yeah, they call themselves around. Berkeley. They were the BTU, the Berkeley Trailers Union. And, oh, yeah. uh, and they're still around. Uh, and, Is the riding and group was, over there still? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, they're all old guys like me now. But, uh, but uh, yeah, they were riding. They were smoking the hills over in Berkeley. At the same time, we're smoking the hills in Marin County because, really, riding downhill fast, we didn't have that idea first. Right. <laughs> I mean, and on cruisers, if you have dirt roads and cruisers, pretty soon you'll – I mean, the very first time I took my cruiser out on a trail, 
you know, a one speed and a, not even a very challenging trail, I found, I noticed that, man, coasting downhill on this 40-year-old bike is amazing fun. And uh, we were far from the first people to notice that. You yeah, know? But yeah, yeah. We were the first people that, as far as I know, that turned it into a systematic race. I mean, I'm sure everybody had mass start downhills. I mean, that's the obvious right, thing, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, you put a couple of guys on anything, whether it's a motorcycle, right. a bicycle, you know, give give them a few beers or whatever, and somebody's going to make a competition out of it, no problem, right? Well, they say one guy on a bike is a ride, two guys on a bike is a race. <laughs> there you, know? you go. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, so after anyway, a couple of weeks, you start getting a few people coming from, from neighboring cities. Now, how big is yeah. the event getting at this point? Well, uh, it really peaked in the early days of the maybe – maybe 20 to 25 riders uh -huh. and we uh we tried to keep the intervals uh, pretty wide open two minute intervals uh because if a guy falls on the road you don't want a guy you know Running right up on over. top of him right uh also after uh, after a while when i started having uh people you know people started uh, having record uh, that is i had a record of people's times then i started uh sorting them out so the fastest riders started last i mean based on your best time uh so, so that way if anybody never, anybody beat your time you'd have a chance to one up them well you wouldn't know that see i mean you wouldn't know what, what the previous oh yeah because the guy doing. with the times is at the bottom of the hill right right but <laughs> but, but uh, there's a reason for that and first you know so you start the the people that have never raced there before the people that are not very fast you start them first uh and uh and then you move up through the list to, so the fastest guys are starting you know at the last uh, at the end of the race now they actually do all the time trials that way um uh, and the reason is that the show keeps getting better right as as the race goes on but here's another factor that i never even realized until i was there and that is okay you know so 20 25 people show up and you know maybe 10 of those people are the regulars and the rest are people that well, you know, they're not serious. They just want to get, you know, ride the hill and, and get a time and maybe improve on their last time or something like that. But when you get down to maybe the six people that were there for the first race and haven't missed one yet, well, those guys all know each other. They're ridiculously competitive with each other. And uh, it's hard to really convey the atmosphere. But, you know, when the first riders are going off, it's kind of like kind of a boisterous atmosphere. And People are talking and laughing and having a good time. You get down to those last five or six, well, they all know each other. They're all highly competitive with each other. And it's dead silent. And it's like, uh, it's Nobody's like got shit I'm getting on my game face. Don't bother me, man. I'm getting my game face on over here. And, uh, I mean, you can just cut the atmosphere with a knife. It was like, man, this is these are guys getting juiced up for like, you're you're writing down times man you were like the original analog strava man well i was and and now people are still uh, you know they're strava in uh you know they ride the course with the strava going you know and but uh something very interesting uh first like i say this thing had taken over our lives to a degree that really is hard to uh to describe it's all we thought about you know i mean we would walk up and down the course to study the course because uh, there are a lot of blind turns, and if you know exactly the radius of that turn, you can maximize how fast you can go through that turn. So we started studying the course to, uh, you know, get that home field advantage and, and right. just uh, get better at it. Um, 
And uh, it's funny uh, the things that you see when you walk walk a, a section. You right, know, right. there's definitely been, you know, whenever you go and you you session a, a little section, let's just say, instead of, you know, a two mile run. But when you session it, one of the most important things that I think that it's, that comes out of that is that you're walking right back up what you rode down. And right, it gives right. you that option to look at like, oh, I didn't even notice that line right there. Or I didn't even notice that weird rock that sticks out there. I always kind of go this way instead. And you just got kind of get that time. So I can see you guys going out there. And and since it's two miles too, you said all oh, just about two miles. Yeah. So I mean that that's definitely that. There's plenty of studying to do on that on the way up that hill. Well, uh, Joe Breeze uh, is uh, we called him the mad scientist uh, because he was very he he approached it very scientifically. He drew a map, a very accurate map, of the course, and then he labeled he gave each of the you know the the major turns a name, so he could remember. You know, he could like memorize the sequence. Right. Uh, and uh, well, then you guys would be able to talk about it as well instead of being right, like right. turned by that tree, you know, with the right. Big rock. Well, <laughs> one of the turns, one of the turns he called Breeze Tree. And that's one that he tried to move the tree and it's still there. Uh, <laughs> and then there's one called Vendetti's Face. Well, Vendetti is Mark Vendetti. And if you've seen Clunkers, there's a scene very early in the film where there's a guy. A total road rash on his face, and he's getting bandaged up. That's Mark Vendetti, and that's why it's called Vendetti's face because he <laughs> he plowed the road a bit with his face. And uh, uh, and then uh, Joe he's would that uh, most efficient break, huh? The face. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, Joe also would uh, he would walk up the course, and on the way up, he would like scratch a mark on the road, you know, at the top of a turn. To remind him what the turn was, you know. I mean, he would he would mark the turns, uh, just like you know, just yeah, scratch yeah. A, you know, uh, X or or a sequence of lines on the road, just so he could okay, he knows where I you know exactly the turn that he's at. Um, so uh, yeah, this thing uh, just got. So the gear that you guys are wearing at the time, I've seen some pictures, and those of you guys that haven't seen clunkers, you guys are generally wearing like gardening gloves, jeans, sneakers. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, but uh, actually, I was a I was the only skateboarder in our crew, and I had knee pads and elbow pads. I had a helmet too, but yeah, you know who wears a helmet to to ride bicycles, you know? So uh, <laughs> what so a crazy about, thought, huh? But if yeah, but if you uh, check out some of the photos of of me at that time, you'll see that I'm wearing skateboard uh, knee pads and elbow pads, and uh, uh, they kind of saved my butt one time. Uh, I. I, the biggest crash I probably ever had on a bicycle, uh, I crashed really hard and I'm lying on the road because you actually want to like, sometimes you don't want to move to find out what the damage is. You know, I mean, and I sure hope that I don't hear things grinding when I do move, but I'm lying there on the road and I'm thinking, wait a minute, one of my friends is going to be along in about a minute and a half <laughs> you need to get and up. I can't be lying here when that happens because he won't be looking for me. So I had to drag myself off the, uh, the road. Uh, but, uh, uh, and, uh, well, let's see, uh, if you look at my right hand, let's see, I get that on the camera, that thumb, you doesn't don't have look, that on doesn't, your doesn't thumb. look quite right. Yeah. You no, that, uh, that, that is from that day. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I'm still carrying the marks around uh, on my body from repack. Um, so how would people get to know 
when this ride was because you you told me right out the gate you were like oh well the first one was this day the next one was five days later the next one was four days later so so when was it that you guys kind of stuck to some kind of schedule well uh it uh i kind of depended partly on uh i was also still working for the band and when the band was out of town i wouldn't put on any races you know what band uh, was I mean, it that you were rodeo a group called sons of champlin uh -huh. and uh and uh not so much uh uh known right now but uh in fact uh, i was a roadie for those guys for 42 years uh i quit in 2010 but uh i'm gonna go to a show uh next month so uh go. those guys are still playing um still getting uh, down <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll get around to that in a minute but uh but uh whenever i felt like putting on a race and uh, uh and whenever i was in town because the band would play on weekends you know and uh mm -hmm. but uh i would uh I just make, I had a phone list and I just call my people on my list. Uh, and then and they'd call their they, people if they need. Yeah, they'd call their friends or whatever, you know. And uh, uh, But uh, after about two years, um, I started to think, you know, I wonder uh, if uh, uh, if somebody else can claim that they thought of this. Now, I don't know that anyone has made that claim, but I had a guy do a poster just so I would have a documentary evidence of what I was doing and when I was doing it, you know, so, uh, so it took you two years to get to that point though. Well, yeah, because, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, at, it took two years before I started to realize that we were really onto something very, very cool. You uh -huh. know, I mean, uh, it was a goof, but, uh, but man, it was taking over our lives. And, uh, and the next, uh, the next thing that happened with that, well, by the that, time it was two years, how many people were racing at that point? Well, it, it really started, it started, it was a hardcore of about, maybe 20 to 25 and uh -huh. but at the same time it was the best free show in fairfax and when there was a race everybody be hiking out there there'd be crowds on the corners and everybody everybody knew where that the, the good thing about the course is all the really hard gnarly switchback turns were at the bottom of the course so right. if you walk up the course maybe you know three or four hundred yards you'd be at a really good spectating location and right. uh okay and so and how far is that from like where you would park at? Well, uh, uh, not a lot of parking. Most people would have to ride a bike. Uh, you, there's enough parking for maybe five or six cars. It's uh, it's actually county open space. Uh, uh -huh. And by the way, we were violating I don't know how many laws because we were uh, we were holding these contests of speed uh, on public land without any kind of a permit. Uh, and uh, we just happened to have a, a great course that was really hard to get to start. It took you an hour to get to the starting line because you got to like, it's a long way mm -hmm. from anywhere. Right. But when you got to the bottom of the hill, you're about a five to 10 minute ride from Fairfax, all just like down the little uh, creek uh, watershed there. So uh, once the race was over, you're back in town in 10 minutes. And so. Uh, so you a bunch uh, of people up there partying, drinking beer, smoking some pot. Oh, yeah. Smoking pot. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, yeah, it's so, legal uh, now, man. You can you yeah, can say yeah, whatever right. you want, right? All right. But, uh, okay, but after a while, after I've been put on the race for you know I I don't know how long, but uh, it started to be to the point where I could go to all the bike shops and I could round up prizes for my race. Now you didn't have there was no entry fee of any kind, uh, and but I could give out prizes because the bike shops knew. That after a race, people would be coming in there to repair the damage that the race had caused. Oh, so uh, the race is pretty tough on the bikes. Then. Yeah. 
That makes um, sense. Yeah. Now, what did your tires pro- look like? Well, the tires were uh, designed in the 30s. They're a Uniroyal knobby. was uh, really not like there was a lot of selection of 26-inch tires uh, in the early 70s. Uh-huh. Uh, so the tires we were using were unchanged from 30 to 40 years earlier. But they did they have could, some knobs on them. They, yeah, but they weren't, you know, nobody was thinking, uh, you know, dirt racing at, uh, you know, this is like, delivering papers you know is what mm-hmm. these bikes were for and uh and a high performance tire was well the the rims were steel and heavy i mean like there were no high performance available you know uh uh really at the time but you you run what you brung and you know you make it do because everybody else has the same stuff right so, right uh, so there's not really any any advantage because basically everybody has the same stuff and nothing yeah, really yeah. built for what you're doing but at the same time uh, well, a couple of things. First, those old cruisers didn't last that long under me. I, I, I get five or six months out of a frame, and then the frame would fall apart. Um, and uh, I so, got if that tired. frame fell apart, I'm assuming that would happen mid ride. Um, so, what, 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 what was uh, some of the injuries that guys sustained? We saw your hand a minute ago. Anything well, worse than that? Well, actually, what, what, what you said. What's the dude's name? His face too met that met the ground. That was a pretty good one. Uh, well, uh, actually, the, it wasn't so much the racing that was destroying the frames, but as once I put gears on my cruiser, it became my everyday bike for any radius within about ten miles. You know, and so now I'm I'm not riding this thing, you know, to the to the Seven Eleven and back. I'm riding it down to Mill Valley and you know around and uh, and it was made for a ninety pound kid to deliver papers on. It wasn't made for a hundred eighty pound bicycle racer. And what would happen is that the, the bottom bracket would just fall right out. I mean, it wasn't so much damage. <laughs> yeah, because, uh, you know, you're, you got, you're fatiguing the bottom bracket by, you know, right. pounding the, the, the crank so hard. And like I said, it's a whole bunch bigger and tougher than most of those bikes were built for. And so it so wouldn't there was really not be a, a bike that was made for, for an adult at that time. Basically, they were just making bikes for kids right. and that was it. And so... It wasn't so much catastrophic failure. It was just like, oh man, I can just feel that thing going, you know. And yeah, you knew and, it was uh, coming. Uh, so, and it became such a pain to replace those old frames because uh, now there were more people that wanted them, and the supply was starting to go down, and the price of the good ones starting to go up. And if you put that old cruiser next to, well, I had an Italian racing bike, a Colnago. If you put your your old cruiser next to the Colnago, you say, actually, I, I see a few areas where this could be improved. And right. uh, one of those areas would be, what if the frame was made out of something other than plumbing, you know? And because, uh, man, that mild steel, uh, the wall thickness is like eighth of an inch thick wall thickness, mild steel, not very tough. Mm-hmm. So uh, I had a friend, uh, uh, <laughs> probably my best friend of my whole life, Joe Breeze, who had taken the course from Albert Eisentrout in building road front, road bikes. Mm-hmm. And he had built road bikes for some of the guys in our club, including Mark Mendetti. And uh, uh, and he was one of the best riders on Repack. And I, for about a year, I pestered Joe. I said, Joe, man, I really want you, you know, I need a frame, a really custom frame for this because, man, I'm tired of, like, having to re- rebuild my bike. And uh, I don't even care how much it costs for a frame. I can afford it, I'm sure, you know. And, uh, and uh, I... I pestered him. He says it was about a year. <laughs> yeah. And uh, then finally one day, 
I'm riding down the street, and here comes Joe the other direction. We're both on our cruisers. And I, we stopped to talk, you know, and I said probably for the hundredth time, Joe, build me a bike. And uh, he goes, well, I'd need some money for tubing. Well, that's a lot different from, no, I'm going home now, you know. So, uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, I have no idea why in 1977 I'm riding around on my cruiser with $300 in my pocket. But I definitely was riding around with $300 in my pocket. And in about 15 seconds, it was in his pocket. And, <laughs> there you uh, go. And I said, go buy some tubing, man. And as soon as the word got out, eight more people lined up waving money at Joe. And so we took nine orders, including mine. And he built one for himself. Uh, and uh, so he, he finished his own. First, hey, it was my idea. I should have got the first one. But anyway, he got the first one. <laughs> he finished that bike. He finished building that bike, and if I know Joe, he finished at four in the morning. Uh, he came out and he won the repack race the very next day on on his, in, on his maiden voyage. Oh, on, there you go. He just dusted you guys, huh? And that bike is now in the Smithsonian. Oh, that's awesome, and, man! Yeah, uh, breezer number one. Well, breezer number two is mine. You and still have that it? One, oh, it's well, yeah, it hangs on the wall of the Mountain uh, Bike Hall of Fame, and. I could take it home if I wanted, but why would I want to? Right. No, that's made to be shared. That's awesome. That's right. Now, as I said, there are only 10 of those bikes built. Number 10 recently sold for $30,000. I mean, this is really, and the number 10 was owned by somebody nobody ever heard of. Mine certainly go for more. I will never know how much mine would go for because I have never, ever, I could pay off my house for that bike, but I'm not going to do it. Yeah, yeah, no, no, Uh, I hear you for sure. So, uh so just so I, people know where the mountain bike hall of fame is you want to you want to talk about oh, that? sure sure uh it started out in crested butte colorado in 1988 and i remember saying to gary fisher well there's going to be a mountain bike hall of fame i wonder if we'll be in it <laughs> 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 kind of a joke we were i i was actually the master of ceremonies for the very first induction and uh had to hand the microphone to somebody else so they can induct me but uh anyway uh it started in Crested Butte, and it was there for, uh, well, 20-some-odd uh, years. But the problem with Crested Butte was, first, the city is tiny. I mean, uh-huh. I don't know what the population is, seven or 800 or something like that. Not very big. It's like, at that, that time, it was like half a, half a mile from the farthest two points in the city, you know, and, uh, and only one street was paved. Um, and the Hall of Fame, actually, the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame, occupied a corner of a restaurant and really had like 150 square feet and crested butte if you go to crested butte that's where you're headed you're not on your way anywhere else because that's where the road ends pretty much and so <laughs> the bottom line is that it was confined to a very small area and not available for that many people and uh some five or six years ago the people who had run it realized that this town just was too small for this this uh, this Hall of Fame because it wasn't available to very many people and didn't have much room to exist in. And so they asked uh, if it could be moved out to Marin County. And Joe Breeze uh, uh, really really was all over this, and because uh, he wanted to open a bike museum himself. And so the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame moved to Fairfax in 2015, and is now part of the. Marin Museum of Bicycling. So, uh, and Joe Breeze is the curator of the Marin Museum of Bicycling. So, uh, 
uh, it's really where it needs to be. Yeah, no, right. Now, That's awesome. Now we're we're within fifty miles of two or three million people. You know, right. And uh, and Chris and some great beer too. Oh well, uh, <laughs> you know Fairfax has jumped all over the mountain bike. Well, such a legacy in Fairfax. You know, there's a really big public monument to mountain biking in Fairfax. Uh, uh, some friends of mine who are uh, mosaic artists persuaded the city to let them use just like a retaining wall in a parking lot. And they put this beautiful mosaic up there. And it says in two foot high letters, repack, uh, you know, Fairfax, uh, birthplace of mountain biking. And uh, it's really elaborate thing. This, you know, uh, huge uh, monument uh, to mountain biking and ironically almost nobody gets to gets a monument with their name on it while they live right. but, um, I, there's a monument with my name on it that I got to show my mom That's so, awesome, uh, man. so uh, uh, and uh, so so as your as your race started picking up steam yeah and you, you you made your first flyer and stuff like that how did this thing like get start even getting bigger than that because i saw like i'm pretty sure in the clunkers video you guys are like on the news and stuff like right, okay so, so how, how did that how did that like how did the mainstream people start catching wind of all, all these long-haired guys up there riding bikes around the woods well what you saw in the film clunkers uh, uh the actual whole footage is uh, available on youtube uh it's called evening magazine um uh i think it's just evening magazine clunking but uh, this uh, this guy, one a guy who worked for a TV station, lived in Fairfax, and he was aware of all this going on. And uh, uh, so a producer. I would imagine Fairfax pretty small at the time, right? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, it hadn't grown much. Population eight thousand. Yeah, yeah. So word so, got around pretty quick. Right. What was going so this on. guy lived in Fairfax, and uh, and the race was pretty, you know, well known in Fairfax. And so he talked to a producer. For a show called Evening Magazine, and that's Joe. I believe it's still on the air, but uh, uh, it was a half-hour show, and it would typically do three different segments. Uh, one would be a local production, and then they would use two different ones from other locals uh, that would go national. So they asked me if I would put on a race for the TV cameras, and of course, once the word got out that hey, TV, man, I don't know how many people showed up—like thirty, or, the biggest field we'd ever had. Uh-huh. Uh, showed up and um, uh, uh, so uh, the this made the this is on the local version of evening magazine and then it was picked up nationally because like I say it's a nationally syndicated program where they use local segments from other areas and right so this actually was shown twice in the Bay Area but once nationally and this was really the first introduction that most people had had to this crazy downhill sport um, and so, uh, but the, it would also kind of put the end to the whole thing because one of the people in the race broke his arm and it was uh -oh. a guy I didn't know. And right up to then, no entry fees, man, just run what you brung, no big deal. Well, uh, suddenly I have a liability exposure. Yeah, I mean, uh -huh. you, can, you can do the math there. Right. And, uh, and this guy actually sued the TV station. What? Uh, because, well, because... Sue and me wasn't going to get him any money. Right. Uh, <laughs> are you going to get my bike? You know, but, uh, um, but, uh, uh, but it was a real message. He lost the suit because they weren't really at fault. He fell off your own bike, man. Yeah, but, right. Uh, 
but uh, it was a real message that there's a liability exposure. And at that point, I shut down the race because that was 1979. And by then, we were starting to think about building bikes commercially. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, so and was, interest. Yeah, go ahead. So, so all you guys then were, were starting to tear off into this because Gary Fisher, obviously, I mean, a lot of people know that name as well in the bike industry. So Joe Breeze, what was the name of his brand? Breezer. Breezer. Okay. So, now, so he's building bikes. Is, is Gary building bikes at the same time? At well, uh, here's, here's how that came down. Uh, Gary didn't get in on that initial order of 10 because Gary had been working for uh, Bicycling Magazine and he'd been uh, working as a mechanic on stage race teams in Europe. And he kind of missed the window where people are handing money to Joe. And Joe took all these orders. And it took him eight months to build my bike because he he had built a few bikes, but that wasn't his profession. Right. He's a very careful guy. Plus, he had to do all the design work before even starting to build these things. Because if you build a road bike, well, there's probably a dozen books in the library on how to do that. Right. But he had to redesign the bike for a different purpose, and he's a very careful guy. So uh, uh, in 1978, we went out to Crested Butte, and Gary was, for the first time, and Gary was still riding his old Schwinn. Joe and I and Wendy Craig were riding our Breezer bikes. Well, we rode into Aspen after the gnarliest downhill any of us had ever seen. And some kid says to Gary, hey, Papa Wheelie. And Gary snaps that 40-year-old handlebar right off his bike. And he goes, whoa, what if that happened like up on the mountain? You know, uh, that could have been disaster. But Gary realized he had to catch up, but he didn't want to wait for Joe to build, you know, take months and months to build a bike. So he talked to Tom Ritchie. And Tom Ritchie had come out and raced in the Evening Magazine uh, race uh, a couple of months earlier. Yet another and, name. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and actually, there's a very quick glimpse of uh, Tom Ritchie in the Clunkers film, but you have to know who he is to pick him out. Anyway, uh, and uh, Joe had shown him the bikes that Joe had built, and they talked about what what Joe would do to, to the next generation from what he'd learned uh, by building the first 10. So... Uh, uh, Gary went to Tom Ritchie and said, look, you know, uh, can you build me a bike based on this, all these principles that we've worked out? And uh, and uh, Tom, yeah, he whipped out a bike, probably took him a week, you know, and uh, instead of months and months like Joe would build because he had the advantage of looking at Joe's drawings and, and all the stuff that Joe had already done, you know. So was so, he already uh, in the bike industry too at the time? Tom Ritchie was 22 years old and he says he'd built a thousand road bikes by then. Oh, wow. 22 years old. So he was working for some other company or he was just building a thousand? No, he started building bikes when he was 14. And uh, uh, by the time he was 22, he had a major business going on with uh, custom bikes, custom road bikes. Oh, okay. So he was already in the game then. uh, Tom Ritchie could have been a professional bike racer, but uh, in the 70s, professional bike racing, at least in the United States, that was no payday at all. For that and tom uh, knew where the money was with building the bikes uh-huh. so he basically uh he was one of the top junior racers in the united states but he by bailed on on racing to, to go full-time into bike uh, building mm-hmm. and so uh uh so anyway based on his conversations with joe and with gary's ideas uh, added and uh uh and with his own experience racing repack he built, uh, he built a bike for himself and one for Gary and one for one of Gary's friends. Actually, he only built the frames. Gary's always very careful to say, a frame is not a bicycle. I <laughs> built the frame, and I 
I assembled a bicycle. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> the semantics so, of these guys. Huh? Yeah, oh, man. Hey, I, I, whatever. But anyway, so, uh, um, uh, so but Tom uh, came to a very interesting conclusion when he built these bikes, uh, these three bikes, and that is that if you build custom road bikes, every time every customer comes to you with eight pages of why it can't why he can't just walk into a bike shop and buy a Tonelli, you know, because there are pretty nice road bikes in bike shops. Right. If you're going to a custom builder, you got to have something that is different from everybody else's bike in the world, right? Right. And that means that each bike has to be unique. Well, Tom realized instantly after building three of these bikes that, um, well, first. I don't have to use that $150 double butted tube set because who cares about that three or four ounces on a, on a mountain bike. Right. Right. And so he's just buying straight gauge chromoly. It's the same stuff, but it's a dollar a foot. So instead of a buck and a half for the materials, he's spending 20 bucks for, for the materials on a bike. Okay. Tubing is almost nothing by comparison. Second, nobody's going to tell him how to build these bikes because nobody has enough experience. Right. Tell him, so, uh, all he, he says, all I got to do is do two sizes. And if there's only two sizes and I'm using this straight gauge tubing, well, I just put a mark on the bench, cut the tube here, grab another tube. I'd cut like 20 tube sets in an afternoon, right. you know, right. uh, starting, just by standard. Starting, starting to be able to do some economies of scale there. Right. And then the third uh, factor is that Tom Ritchie was one of the very few road frame builders who worked lugless. That is, uh, you know, you know what I'm, you know what lugs are, right? The little sleeves that go on the end of the, the tubes and all the corners of a road frame. Okay, yeah, uh, yeah, I know what you're talking okay, about. Okay, okay. Well, the, uh, if you work with lugs, you have to use the tubing sizes and the angles that those lugs come in. But Tom Ritchie worked lugless, called bronze welding or brazing, and so he could stick any tubes together at any angle. Which right. Meant that so he so could, now he starts. Uh, he, now he starts playing with geometry. Right, and also using larger tubing, uh, mm -hmm. larger diameter tubing to get a little stronger frame. So, bottom line is that Tom, just just because it was so easy, he built nine more of those frames that, like he built for Gary, just because it was easy to do. And they had some time on maybe nobody would order a bike for a week, and okay, I'll do some of these because they're fun. Mm -hmm. And then he found that where he lived, which was only 50 miles from Marin County, Palo Alto, there was no market for these frames uh, that the only market for these frames was Marin County where people are going to spend that kind of money on a bike. Uh, as Gary joked, who's going to spend $1,300 on a bike that rides that uses $3 tires. But anyway, uh, so, um, so he had these nine frames and they sat around and after a while he goes, well, I got, got to unload these things. So he, only two guys he knew in Marin were Joe Brees and Gary Fisher. Well, Joe Greaves could build his own bikes, and Gary had bought one from him. So he talked to Gary and said, "Well, I, I know you sold one of my frames to a friend. Uh, you think you could unload these other nine frames for me?" And uh, so Gary went down and he picked up those frames. And that very afternoon, he finds me in town, in Fairfax, and he says, "Charlie, check this out." And he opens the trunk of his car, and here's nine of these frames, and they're absolutely as nicely built as Tour de France frames because. They're built by a guy who could build a Tour de France frame, you know. Uh -huh. And Gary goes, hey, man, want to sell bikes? <laughs> and, how, you know, 
how you know uh, how, how how much of your life turns on one yes or no answer. You know? Right, right. And that I screwed up. For you. I really screwed up and said, "Yeah," and uh, <laughs> and, and so uh, we uh, we counted the money that we had between us. Uh, I wasn't talking around that much money. We had a couple of hundred bucks between us, and we just marched right up to the bank, about three hundred yards from where he asked the question. And we're there in ten minutes, opening up an account for our business that we're about to start. And so, well, the obvious question is, what's the name of your business? Uh, we're going to call ourselves Mountain Bikes. That really sounded like a good name. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> turns out it was a really good name. And in fact, we paid a guy to trademark that name and should have saved the money. But uh, anyway, uh, so armed with a checking account and nine frames, that was everything we had. We had $200 in a checking account and nine bike frames. Uh, we... Now we got to sell some bikes, and the problem is we had we didn't have enough money to even buy all the you know the hub sets or whatever. So you at first you had to pay us up front thirteen hundred dollars, and then you had to wait while we shop. We went down to the motorcycle store for some of the stuff. We went to the bike shop for other stuff. We called Phil Wood for some of the other stuff, but basically it cost us as much to put so, together so a bike. Phil, Phil Wood like Phil's grease. Same guy made uh, made the hubs. Yeah, get out of town. And, I didn't know that. He's, no, see, you guys were all like this. This was all the guys that like freaking all had to do with where we're at today, man. It just absolutely. blows my mind. <laughs> it just well, and and you know we all knew each other because hey, the the bike business was not huge then like it is now. Right. Anyway, so you had to trust us with thirteen hundred dollars while. We went down to the bike shop and actually bought some of the stuff. Yes, because basically you guys didn't have any capital, so you needed somebody to no. pay for the bike so you could actually exactly. go build the bike, and then you'd keep the profit as long as you didn't. There isn't any profit. The <laughs> we spent all the money uh, building the bike, but uh, but uh, we we started to establish ourselves. Uh, Gary and I rented a garage to build the bikes in because the first few were built just in my house, you know, and uh, um, and once we had this rented garage, then we had to talk people into selling us the stuff, you know, the hubs and the spokes and all the, the stuff. And as I point out on the bike, the saddle was English. The seat posts were Japanese. The brakes were French. The spokes were Swiss. Uh, the brake levers were German. The hubs were American custom made. I mean, basically, we had to get this stuff from a whole bunch of different directions. And, uh, you know, some you weren't you weren't ordering your stuff on Amazon Prime. That's for sure. No, right? no, no. But uh, <laughs> and some of these suppliers would say, "You're not a business. You're two hippies in a rented garage." And we're going like, <laughs> well, well, yeah, but we still need this stuff, you know. Right? But, uh, but eventually, we uh, we we established these supply lines, and uh, we started selling the bikes. And uh, so uh, after you, after you, after you got through those nine frames, how'd you how'd you how how'd you start sourcing more of them then? Well, uh, by then, uh, we had established that there was, in fact, a market for this stuff. And so Tom would build the frames, and he would supply us with the frames, and we would assemble the bikes, sell uh, sell the bike, and then pay for the frame. You know, I mean... So, so uh, Tom, Tom Ritchie's building the bikes for Gary Fisher, and you guys are selling them under the name Mountain Bikes. Right. Well, uh, actually, the Mountain Bikes company was me and Gary, and Tom Ritchie was Tom Ritchie, and... We never really had any kind of a written agreement as to how the whole thing worked, which was why the business eventually fell apart because written agreements are very helpful for knowing how the business works. But, uh, <laughs> but you understand, 
you understand here's our business plan hey man you want to sell bikes right you well, got nine of them you're, you're yeah out. yeah <laughs> and you know uh, there was no way to see it coming you know i mean we're thinking nine bikes that's going to take us forever to get rid of these and after that we might sell 10 or 15 of these every year right but we didn't see what we had created coming at us and we yeah. created this avalanche that we weren't really prepared in any kind of a business sense to deal with um and uh, we kept it going for about close to four years, uh, but we were actually losing money all the time. And the oh. reason is, uh, the reason you're losing money is because the capitalization of the company is coming from Tom Ritchie taking 20 bucks worth of tubing and turning it into something that's worth 450 bucks worth of frame. And now we're spending that money and we owe Tom that money, but we just spent it on rent, you know? And so right. uh, what was happening was, uh, we were paying everybody but Tom, uh, right. you know, and the, the debt to Tom was growing and Tom was getting more and more, you know, bent out of shape because, hey, man, the problem is it's uh, if he cuts us off, well, you'll never get your money. Uh, and at the same time, <laughs> you know, I mean, it was yeah, a real yeah. pro business problem, you know, right, right. but uh, uh, we were we were pretty deep in debt to Tom Ritchie uh, and. It was becoming a, you know, like I say, Gary and I were joined at the hip for many, many years, or 12 years anyway. And, it was, you know, when your business is really, really struggling, your friendship starts to fray, you know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and so from from the time when we first opened that rented garage, man, I'd be there at 7 in the morning. I couldn't wait to get in there and start building up some bikes, you know. And then by three years later, man, it's like, man, we're going to have a fight about something every day, you know, because man, what, what's the leak we got to plug today, you know? Right. And, uh, and so it was, it was becoming a real strain. And, uh, uh, we had changed the name from mountain bikes because now everything's a mountain bike, right. To Kelly Fisher mountain bikes. And Gary goes, uh, why can't we be Fisher Kelly mountain bikes? And I go, well, it can't be FK bikes. I mean, uh, <laughs> 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 so we'll be KNF. Just didn't think, anyway, just didn't think that was going to be marketable, huh? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, so, um, uh, but uh, Gary's uh, uh, father bought my interest in the company uh, and got me off the hook because instead of owing tens of thousands of dollars, I got paid to go do something else. And what else I was doing was my magazine, the Fat Tire Flyer. Um, uh, and then. Uh, about six months later, Tom Ritchie and Gary Fisher uh, quit working together, and uh, Kelly Fisher Mountain Bikes became Fisher Mountain Bikes, a little better better known because Kelly Fisher Mountain Bikes lasted about five or six months, you know, uh -huh. and then then uh, was Fisher Mountain Bikes. But uh, so whenever whenever uh, Gary and Tom stopped working together, then Tom decided he was going to start doing the Ritchie line, or well, sure. By then, Tom was well established and uh, and. Uh, Tom's a great businessman. I mean, there is no doubt about that. And he's a great designer. And by then, uh, his name was Gold. I mean, right. uh, he didn't have to convince anybody of anything like we had to at first because... Was he, he still racing at that point, though, too? What's that? Was he racing at that point, too? Uh, if I'm not aware of any races that he was in as a senior. Uh, when he so was he a was junior. Just, just really basing, like, his name was getting known by the bikes that he was building. Right, right, just from building bikes. You know, uh, 
there was a very famous incident when he was 17 years old. Uh, a big, big race called Crockett Martinez, still going on. Mm-hmm. And Tom Ritchie so, won that race when he was 17, right? Okay. And, and so, uh, so there he is. You know, he's like three or four minutes ahead of the next guy to finish. And they said, well, actually, you're a junior, so you can't win this race. The guy that finished like minutes behind him was the senior winner. I mean, I would imagine that's still the the trails that are over there in Crockett in that area. Well, no, this was a road race. Oh, it was a road race. Oh, okay. And and it'd been going on for a long time. Still does go on. Oh, okay. Uh, but but it was a road race, and like I say, the seventeen year old junior won it by a, a healthy margin. Yeah, yeah. And then they said, "Well, no, you're not the winner. The next guy that finishes the winner because you're you're a junior. You're the junior winner of this race. Yeah, that's the lame. senior winner is the guy that finished behind you and." Tom goes, well, how about that? <laughs> you know? Right. And That's he got kind of disgusted with the the rules of the whole deal, you know. And uh, Yeah, that, and, that's definitely something that put a little sour taste in your mouth. So speaking yeah. of winners, so whenever you wrapped up the, the repack, who was it that had the most wins? Uh, well, uh, Joe Breeds won the most events, uh, and Gary Fisher has the record time. And uh, I heard just, somebody say that that time still is, is standing. Yes, and... Uh, uh, people have come out there with pretty fancy downhill bikes trying to trim that record, and they can't beat a record set by a guy who's riding a 40-year-old bike. And But there's a reason for that, a couple of reasons for that. First, uh, the the course, we just picked the course because it was convenient, but at the high point of the course is actually not at the start line. Uh, the highest point on the course is about 100, 150 yards from the start, and it's maybe... 10 or 12 feet higher in elevation than the start line. And a modern downhill bike uh, is made to start off like a 45-degree ramp. And starting on a dead level with a hole shot is they, they're not made for that, you know. Right. And, uh, and the top three times are held by guys who are really good road racers. And by mm-hmm. the way, those top three times are separated by something like two and a half seconds. I mean – Three guys were finishing really, really consistently, uh, you know, uh, pretty much the maximum time. And there have been some people that have come within 10 seconds of that, but nobody's nobody's uh, lowered that record. And also, like I said, this thing took over our lives. Uh, I don't think anybody is willing to spend the three weeks walking up and down the course and studying and mapping and doing all the things that we did to you know, really maximize our performance on that course. Uh, I know Marla Strab has run a pretty good time, and she is really one of the great women downhillers. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the course record still stands, and, in fact, the top three times still stand, all set by guys on 40-year-old bikes. So, That's crazy. Uh, uh, so yeah, what, well, what's the time? What's the time that people have to The time do? is 422. Joe Breeze is uh, 423 and change, and and Otis Guy is uh, 424 or so. So uh, you can tell that with that grouping, that the the course was pretty much being maximized, you know. Uh, and um, by the way, the uh, the repack downhill, uh, like I said, I shut it down in 1979. In 1983, uh, I was a founding member of Norma. Uh, and one of the reasons that we founded that was from my experience that we knew that if you're going to promote races, you need to be insured. You have to have, you know, some kind of liability coverage. 
And so mm -hmm. uh, in 1983 and 1984, there were the last two repack downhills held with a Norba sanction. And that became the, the last two repack events were the very first downhill sanctioned mountain bike events in the world. Because, uh, I mean, as soon as we had the insurance, we had the races. But uh, the problem is that 99 people showed up for that last race in 1984. I mean, by then, you know, mountain bike racing was a thing. And we came to the attention of all the people that owned the property where we're holding these unsanctioned events or, well, they weren't sanctioned, but they, there were no permits issued, you know? And so uh, uh, it just, uh, we outgrew the, uh, the venue. And, uh, uh, and because really the original course was picked because it was kind of like secret. And once you put it on the map with a hundred riders, well, it's not a secret anymore. And, and we came to the attention of the people that owned the property and they said, don't do that again. So mountain bike downhill moved to another location. Now, um, the next place that there was a big downhill race was the Mammoth Kamikaze. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the Mammoth Kamikaze, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, I've heard of that. Okay, well, in 1985, I got a call from this guy, Don Douglas, because there was no that downhill that almost died. Because who was willing to put on these crazy downhill events? Well, this guy called me and he said, well, uh, Mammoth Mountain says that uh, they'll let me use the, the lifts and the service roads, but on a downhill race, and you're the only guy that's ever done that before, so would you come out here and be my consultant and timer guy? And, uh, and yeah, awesome, you know? So, I mean, think about it, man. A ski lift ride to the top, a four-mile downhill on a road that is really wide, I mean, uh, it was awesome, you know, just the concept was awesome. So we, uh, I went out there and I uh, helped them with the timing on the first at Mammoth Kamikaze. And they couldn't believe how many hundreds of people showed up to race that. So it was you know, four miles of downhill? Four miles of downhill and starts at 11,000 feet elevation where there's zero wind resistance. Right, and right. And so uh, uh, I know I talked to Steve Pete last year. I said, Steve, what's your top speed at the Mammoth Kamikaze? He says, ah. 62 or 63 miles an hour uh, Good on Lord. dirt uh, on a dirt road. You know, I mean, and I hit 45 miles an hour on my full suspension disc brake mountain bike. I'm thinking, and I'm doing it on a paved road, and I'm thinking, this feels like fast enough. You know, it's like <laughs> hard to believe what it must feel like to do 60 miles an hour on dirt. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think the fastest I've ever been is just a hair over forty. So it's well, definitely, and I, I felt like I was holding on for my dear life at that point. So, well, uh, you know, uh, the ski resort though. Uh, so the next year, my my the guy who uh, brought me in to do that, he called up Mammoth Mountain. He says, oh, "Okay, I want to rent the place again." And they go, "Well, actually, uh, we'll take it from here," because they saw the money potential. They didn't see, you know, okay, yeah, you can rent this place for a bike race. Yeah, sure. Well, when four or five hundred people showed up spending money, the ski resort goes, duh, yeah. duh. And uh. if, if anything, a ski resort is, man, they got downhill timing. That's their thing. You know, I mean, you don't need to bring in a consultant to, to show how to, a ski resort how to time a downhill. They do it all the time. Right, know? right. Yeah, and, they know uh, what they're doing in that. In that right, thing. right. So, uh, but the Mammoth Kamikaze remains the highest speed uh, downhill race because... 
everywhere else they pretty much conducted on single track or something you know have you uh, seen that have you seen that race that they do ever in europe on the snow it's called the uh the uh the Alpduez. uh it's yeah, like the, the they, mega, mega avalanche or something like that. It is, man. I'm telling you, I would love to watch that. But it's like uh, the distance on that is something like 17, 18 miles. Yeah, and it's like uh, it's like six or seven thousand feet elevation change. Well, more recently, I'll ride right at the top of Mount Cam. I'll ride top to bottom on Mount Cam, which is about I think 23, 2400 feet difference. I'm exhausted halfway down. It's hard to imagine the beating you take on a, uh, you know, on like 17 mile downhill. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but the guy who finishes that is not only a great downhiller, he's a pretty tough guy. Right, uh, pretty, pretty tough, dude. Because, man, it's, there's a whole, there's a big stamina uh, component to riding the, uh, the Alpuez. Do you still go out to the repack every once in a while? Well, I mean, uh, if, if my rides take me there, um, because uh, uh, you know it's close by, but yeah, uh, but I have a, the, a really nice bike to ride these days. So what, what kind of what kind of bike are you sitting on these days? I am riding a Breezer Repack, and uh, Joe says, "Hey, if I gave you a bike, can I call it the Repack?" And I go, "Joe, nobody else in the world would get that privilege, but you bet you can." And of course, it's a sweet, sweet bike. You know, uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar with that particular model. No, but, I'm uh, not. It's, a, it's it's an enduro bike, so uh -huh. I mean it's it's a downhill bike that you can ride uphill essentially, and how, it's a long much? way from being a light bike. It's uh, I, I don't go for carbon fiber uh, because uh, man, carbon fiber has uh, durability issues. I mean, if you if you put a big dent in your carbon fiber frame, it's gonna fail there, you know. Uh -huh. and, uh, and yeah, this light's not this bike's not particularly light. But it's definitely tough, you know, and so, uh, uh, and hey, I don't race anybody uphill anymore. You don't time me with a clock, you time me with a calendar, you know, so. With uh, a calendar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, so do you just ride around there locally mostly? Sure, you, sure. I mean, uh, ride still or? Uh, I ride with my friends who are also old guys, you know, because yeah. uh, now more recently I, I, uh, I did a lecture tour. You, by the way, you know, I have a book in print about my bike adventures. Uh, What's the name of your Europe. book? My book is called Fat Tire Flyer. Okay. Uh, and um, I uh, I was in England uh, last uh, fall uh, doing a lecture tour to uh, push my book. And uh, uh, of course, you've got to go on bike rides if you're on a lecture tour about book about bikes. And I said, man, you got to get me an e-bike because, man, everybody I'm riding with is 40 years younger and they race bicycles. You know, I mean, it's like it just gets embarrassing, you know. So, uh, I, you know, once we get to the top, no problem. I can get downhill, you know, in reasonable time. But man, it's a lot, I'm a lot slower on the climbs. And and if you want me to be with everybody else so they can talk to me, I, you better get me an e-bike. And so that was my only e-bike experience was riding in England. But yeah, uh, Lisa got me to the top of the hill to ride. You know, what'd you think else. about that? Well, uh, I I could see one for. Not so much for, for mountain biking, but for local transportation, it's a really cool idea because just adds to your range, you know. And, yeah. And uh, 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 so, uh, you know, as soon as somebody sees fit to give me one, because I have a principle, I don't pay for my bikes. Uh, yeah, I think <laughs> I think that's probably something you could stick to. And, and I could probably get one of those. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, I'll probably uh, get one, but not much, not for mountain biking because. 
I enjoy the riding uphill as long as I don't have to race anybody, you know. And, uh, right. Uh, but for as far as like just cruising around, you know, it 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 adds like considerable range to just riding around the, on town bikes, you know. So, uh, so I want to ask you a question. Sure. You guys, you guys started this this thing, this mountain biking thing that you know, or or so to speak, started it. You guys were the first person to kind of get noticed, I guess you know, yeah. nationally. So that, as you said earlier, there was other people doing the same thing. Yeah. But here you are in these up in the hills in in, in Marin, and and nowadays, Marin County is a spot that is not super friendly to to bikers. Still. Well, it kind of depends on where you go because. Um, Ironically, the very first place that I ever took my cruiser, my town bike, out on the trail, uh, this uh, friend of mine called up me and Gary, and he said, uh, hey, remember when we were kids, we took our big old fat tire bikes out on the trails? Let's throw them in the pickup truck and come on up here, and we'll, we'll take a ride out on some trails here, you know? And uh, the trails that we rode on were on a Boy Scout camp where I'd been camping as a Boy Scout, you know, whatever, 15 years earlier. And, uh, and we took these our town bikes out on this trail and uh, pushed them uphill for a while and then coasted back down and thought, wow, that was kind of fun. Well, Tamarancho, the Boy Scout camp, uh, uh, they had a problem with, uh, they got to pay their taxes, you know, and tax rates are going up and so forth. And they made a deal with the mountain bike community to build a single track trail that completely goes around the perimeter of this, uh, this camp. It's 10 miles long. I mean, it's a pretty good sized piece of property and so there's a 10 mile dedicated mountain bike single track it's got a flow trail uh, on one section so uh you can yeah. do your jumps and all that yeah I've, and, I've ridden i've ridden that the 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 tamarancho trail i've actually ridden it in both directions it is a really fun trail if you guys right. are in northern california and you haven't been there definitely go ride that i think what is it, it there, there's an entrance fee to get in or to, to uh, ride it's a, it's a five dollar a day one one day fee or fifty dollars for fifty dollars for an annual uh, ticket, you know, and right, uh, and uh, for me, yeah, there, hey, that yeah, go ahead. There, there's a little flow section in the trail. I mean, it's not super long, but it's enough to have fun on. Um, it's a good, good, solid XC trail. It's got some some good little techie spots in it here and there. You can run the trail either direction too. Yeah. It's not not a one way one way deal. And it's also right down the street from from the the mountain biking uh, hall of fame there as well. Correct. So uh, yeah, and in fact, uh, that's part of the reason why Fairfax has just become such a uh, a mecca. Uh, we actually uh, on a weekend, a nice day like today, you'll see uh, you know you walk out on the street, you'll see like 15, 20 bikes in motion. You know, at any given time, because the road riders come from San Francisco, it's like. 20, maybe 25 miles from San Francisco. So it's a nice turnaround. You know, you make a 50 mile ride and, and have lunch in Fairfax, or they'll, they'll put the bikes on the car. And from Fairfax, if you head west, you're out in the country and there are no more stop signs. And you can, you know, get a long country ride out there. And then also, uh, there are quite a, there's several other trailheads uh, that are accessible from Fairfax. And of course, there are, bars there are two mountain biker bars that just cater to the mountain bike crowd uh the gestalt house has indoor bike parking i mean uh bring your bike inside have you seen that one uh, no i haven't what's the name of it it's called the gestalt house they got probably 50 different kinds of uh craft beers uh 
indoor bike parking. Uh, I mean, you just bring your bike right in there. And uh, uh, in fact, uh, the economy of Fairfax is uh, uh, heavily driven by bicycles because uh, uh, they got three bike shops. Uh, you got the Tamarancho, they got the museum, got all these uh, drinking establishments. And uh, uh, so uh, the bike people are really, really, they've been noticed. And Fairfax is very, very friendly to bikes. So uh, great little town if you want to uh, looking for a place to, to take a ride. So and you you work down there at the, uh, the Hall of Fame as well, don't you? Well, I volunteer because uh, as the joke goes, everybody there is a volunteer except the landlord. <laughs> and uh, so, so, uh, and because Joe had gone off to uh, uh, the Seattle this weekend, they're a little shorthanded. He's the curator there and runs the place. Uh, but they're a little shorthanded in the museum, and, uh, and I fill in. And, uh, and also, I, I push my book pretty hard while I'm there. So uh, uh, it's, uh, it's a convenient place for me to, you know, uh, pu push my own commercial interests. Uh, so, but, as far uh, as uh, if anybody listens to this and they want to go out and try try to to ride the repack, would they do that right from Fairfax or? Sure, but like I say, it's uh, uh, there are three basic ways to get to repack, uh, and in any of the ones that you choose, take you about an hour to do. You know, I mean, it's uh, like I say, it's only two miles, but it's a tough two miles, uh, and you you know you go straight up it if you want. That's the shortest way. Uh, the record time was uh, set by Joe Murray when he was the national champion. It was 25 minutes uh, from bottom to top. But he was like the Joe Murray champion. from Mur Murray Bikes. Yeah, well, uh, yeah. And uh, he was national champion when he set that time. But really, it's 45 minutes uh, to an hour if you push your bike up at 14% grade. You can, you can ride parts of it. And I hear that there are people that ride bottom to top without a dab. But I'm yeah, I wouldn't doubt people. it. There's a, there's some crazy fuckers out there, man. <laughs> yeah, but uh, anyway, it's it's a it's a real chore to get to the top, uh, and then there are some easier ways, but they're a little longer. So uh, so you know, whatever you choose, uh, there's several ways to get there, um, and uh, it's wide open. Nobody nobody's going to tell you you can't ride there. Uh, there's only one day of the year where it's blocked off, and that's Thanksgiving because that's when. 800 people ride out there on our annual uh, Thanksgiving Day ride. And uh, because they don't want 800 people crossing the creek and getting muddy, I know it's killing the fish and all that. Uh, they say that's the one day of the year when they prefer that you don't ride repack. But rest of the year, no big deal, you know. So uh, people come from a long way off just to see if they can approach Gary Fisher's record and they never do. So what is that? What what is some of the stuff that that really shocks you with the way that the the whole biking industry grew from from what you guys started doing out there back back in the seventies? Well, you know, now uh, we I, okay. I was thirty years old when I put on my first downhill. How good at, uh, uh, are you going to get at any sport that you take up at the age of thirty? You know, mm -hmm. okay. Well, now and also we're on pretty crude equipment. Okay, now. You've got two generations that have grown up with the coolest, you know, full suspension stuff with uh, a, uh, a framework that encourages them to do really daring stuff on these bikes and the bikes that can actually handle it. You know, I mean, uh, if I'd taken my, you know, 1938 Schwinn 
off a three-foot jump, I'd have walked home. (laughs) (laughs) That was the end of the day. Yeah, that would have been it. And so, uh, and so, I mean, we weren't really acrobatic kind of riders. uh, And the acrobatic people started coming in from the BMX because we were road riders, and road riders don't typically go off of jumps, you know. So, when the BMX guys started entering, well. Uh, first, the bikes were getting a little tougher, and they were starting to get a little more airborne. Well, now, I look at the Red Bull, which is pretty much, and maybe the Alpe d'Huez, uh, you know, uh, Meg Avalanche. Those represent, uh, you know, areas that we could only dream of. I mean, we we were thinking, you know, well, suspension would be cool, but how would you do it? You know, I mean, we were thinking about suspension back in the day because, Motorcycles had them, and right, you know, right, that really makes sense. Stuff, but, but, uh, but we being traditional road guys, we had no, you know, background in that kind of stuff, and uh, and it was, uh, you know, uh, the short rock shocks when they came out with all of what inch half an inch of travel, you know, right, right, it's a big deal, and though. using a urethane bumper, a skateboard wheel, essentially for your uh, for your shock, uh, well. That's that started the the trend, and of course, full suspension. It took a while for, for full suspension to really uh, get there because uh, the first full suspension bikes were really a yeah they were a chore to ride uphill because uh, they hadn't figured out how how to keep you from going up and down right, as much as right. you went up, you know. And well, when when they, I got my breezer repack, I couldn't believe how that thing would climb. Yeah, yeah, it's just crazy nowadays that that the way the technology is. So I'm gonna go back to the repack again one more time. Yeah. So um, were you guys tacoing wheels and pretty 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 quickly on that? It happened. uh, It happened. uh, But uh, the the first uh, races were the wheels were these really fat, heavy things, you know, and they they're pretty tough to taco. Uh, But uh, yeah, you know, and then of course, uh, then you just like. Lay it on the ground and try to stomp it into something. Oh, yeah, actually, that's, that's what we a, did I, when I was riding BMX as a kid. You bend your wheel up, you just stand on it until it's straight, straightish. Here's <laughs> an experience I had. Uh, we used to take moonlight rides uh, uh, before we even repack. Uh, we would take moonlight rides. You know, a full moon. You know, you go out there and you ride your cruisers. And so we took this. <laughs> you we guys were some moon- ballsy dudes, man. <laughs> we took this uh, moonlight ride. And we go to the top of Pine Mountain. We're sitting there and like, yeah, you know, okay. Uh, and while we're on top of the mountain, the fog came in and kind of like obscured the moon. And so it's pretty bright light when the when the full moon, you know. But but then it was got not really very bright. But it didn't matter because we still raced downhill, and it's still damn dark. And so I'm following, trying to follow Gary Fisher's wheel. And then I'm uh, regaining consciousness. And I don't remember gaining consciousness. And then I don't, and I don't remember being on the ride. And uh, somebody had to tell me where I was, which was lying on the road on Pine Mountain. And uh, my wheel was tacoed. My front wheel was tacoed where I hit something the size of a watermelon, you know. And uh, uh-huh. uh, and uh, I clearly had a concussion, you know. I mean, you don't, <laughs> you're not unconscious for five or ten minutes without some kind of pretty severe concussion you yeah know? yeah you and, definitely uh, rattled your brain box but, a little but at the same one. time man i'm still like three or four miles from town so you gotta how are you getting down well only way is on your bike but because i had a drum brake and not a dis not a, a rim brake uh 
somebody stomped my wheel to the point where it was still roll in the fork, even though it was still kind of crooked, but the brake worked, you know. Mm-hmm. And so uh, 10 minutes after I regained consciousness uh, from this concussion, I'm back on my bike, riding down Repack in the dark uh, to get back to town, because that's the only way I'm getting back to town. <laughs> and uh, I had one side of my face was all road rash, you know, I mean, uh, uh-huh. and uh, uh, so, hey, you know, and uh, back in town, back in the bars, let's, let's drink. And that's not really recommended, but uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, well, you know, it's the way, that, but, the way uh, a lot of guys fix problems, right? Just yeah. Well, anyway, yeah. And drink a beer. So, right? <laughs> so, yeah, I rode down uh, repack on a pretty much tacoed wheel in the dark with a concussion. There and, you go. Uh, and uh, uh, just, you know, as to my legend, you know. <laughs> right. So you guys, you guys um, also, I want to say, you know, brakes, obviously, when you started out, you were just using coaster brakes. Right. And I think I read somewhere that you guys started trying to use like mo- motorcycle brakes on your, you were like modifying your bikes to, to fit them on there. Well, uh, we use motorcycle brake levers because they were really much bigger than bike uh, brake levers. But uh, the, we had to use... Uh, I, I think one guy tried put a you know like a, a moped brake on on his bike, but a moped brake is like seven or eight pounds. The thing's huge, and uh-huh. you know uh, if you got to do a hole shot, well, it's not going to help you do that. You know, so uh, the the drum brakes that we used were almost all made for tandems. Uh, uh, you know, big two person bikes. Uh huh. And in fact, uh, we had a. A bike shop that we would have order these bikes for these brakes for us because you know before gary and i opened our business we bought our stuff through regular bike shops and right there these guys uh Likoski brothers and uh uh they're still well known in the bike the mountain bike thing but uh they're they, they had a bike shop and so we they'd order anything we wanted and they ordered these tandem brakes well the company that made these brakes called them up and said hey we sell 15 or 20 of these every year in the entire United States. We just sold you 20 of them in one bike shop. What's the deal there? You know, and, <laughs> and, uh, no, well, they're not going on tandems. They're going on old cruisers, you know, and uh, uh, because you needed something that, you know, coaster brake and the derailleur gears, you can't use them together. So we had to go to the drum brakes so we could uh, have a freewheel on the bike. So uh, were you, you, you were, you mentioned that, uh, the the year of the bike earlier and it, i thought you said something that was from like the 30s or something like that right were you guys see, bikes, yeah. see, so you guys were seeking out some older frames just for what reason well because uh they were cheap and easy to find because they were junk by then i mean you know uh you could so that's have what it came these... down to you you the, the, you knew that you guys were going to bust these things up and and, well, and they also you didn't have much for a budget so you're buying these old bikes well, they're cheap first, and then second, uh, all the standards from one brand to another were all the same. All if you had a crank set, it was going to go on any bike. If you had a, a fork, it would go on any bike. The handle, all the standards, you didn't have to worry about you know whether this stuff would fit because uh, for whatever reason, um, all the the different companies. Although Schwinn probably made eighty to ninety percent of those bikes, there were other companies building bikes at the time and mm-hmm. and they all use the same standards for bottom brackets and and wheel spacing and everything else so if you had a pile of parts and you had all the parts you could put a bike together right and uh and so uh the parts were pretty much interchangeable and um 
the frames were easy to come by at first anyway, but uh, uh, they got harder and harder to come by as more people wanted them. And those of us who had them were breaking the ones that we had, you know. So that's one of the things that drove me to want a custom frame was just so I wouldn't have something that I wouldn't have to replace pretty often, you know. And not so much for performance, but just, hey, man, every time I got to go out and find one, like there's fewer of them to find, the price just went up again, you know. So, uh, yeah, originally just because they were our town bikes, you know, and easy to come by. Uh huh. What is uh, what what is one of the parts that right now that just really blows you away is it uh, compared to like what you guys had back then? Is it like having a dropper? Is it having suspension? Is it having carbon fiber? It, what oh, what is it? Something it, that that just kind of is, is the most interesting to you on these modern disc bikes? brakes. Disc brakes by far because uh, until disc brakes came along. Uh, whatever kind of brake, well, everything was a rim brake of some sort, right? Uh, and, uh, well, you know, okay, drum brakes aren't very good. I mean, that's what we had, but they weren't very good. Um, okay, but when mountain bikes really started rolling, then, then everybody had cantilever brakes on the bikes, right? Um, but in wet weather, cantilevers are a problem. And, in fact, the first national championship, uh, was shortened because it was conducted in mud and everybody's brakes had worn down to nothing. Um, so uh, when disc brakes came along, I couldn't believe the improvement uh, because really brakes were always a problem. Uh, the best brakes you could get until disc brakes came along were only passable. You know? Yeah, yeah. You know how and, I always tell people how, how, to, how you know like whether or not you have good brakes or how good your brakes are? Buy better brakes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, because uh, you'll never realize is, how shitty your brakes are until you get better ones, and then you're like, "Oh my god, this is a world of difference." Well, I tell I tell people I learned how to ride downhill before brakes were invented. You know? and so, uh, uh, bit hyperbolic, but uh, but in fact, the brakes really did suck, uh, especially when you had steel rims. I mean, uh, man, they're so slippery. Get them wet, just a little wet. And man, you couldn't even slow down. So yeah, hands down, uh, disc brakes are, are the, the biggest thing that's come along. Uh, however, uh, a year or so, a couple of years ago, I did a, a publicity event um, up in Chico. And there's a guy there named Jeff Lindsay who builds mountain goat bicycles. And, and I said, hey, we'll call this the old goat ride, you know, and, uh, and uh, I, I rode a a Fisher Comp, a 1987 Fisher Comp, which would have been one of the nicest bikes you could get in 1987. And I'm thinking, man, this is the most brutal ride I can remember because I got all softened up with uh, long travel suspension. I don't mind that at all. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh, let me just uh, break away from the subject for just a second. I, sure. I was, man, the thing that fascinates me is the Red Bull. I like mean, the Rampage? Yeah, because... That was that. Uh, that would be just like, you know, some kind of science fiction for us in the yeah, 80s. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what, man. It's borderline science fiction for me still today, dude. Watching those guys, just the shit that they do, it, it just blows my freaking mind. Well, that's what happens when you got kids that grew up in a world that always had full suspension bikes, that always had uh, competitive downhills, and so you know, uh, like I say, I took this up at the age of thirty and. You're not going to probably get a lot better after that age, but 
if you if the kid who can ride a bike at the age of three or four is riding a full suspension bike by the time he's six what's he going to be doing by the time he's 19 and has no fear you know yeah yeah and now we know what they'll be doing they'll do you know hey jumping a 50-foot gap well if you don't do it with a backflip who the hell are you right <laughs> so, with a, with a backflip while you're like waving high and yeah, god right. knows what else they're doing you know backflip you know right. <laughs> uh well there's the one stunt that i i it's got a name but it's where the guy lets go of the bike the bike the bike does a full flip and then he does a full flip and finds the bike again and gets back on it before the whole thing comes down i mean it's like what kind of what kind of dope you gotta be smoking to come up with that right <laughs> uh, whatever it is, but uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> but uh, but really, uh, what has uh, really what 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 the sport turned into, well, with the equipment and generational, uh, you know, uh, enthusiasm, uh, has uh, you know, man, I can't believe, you know, I look out there and say, man, did I have a hand in this at all? Because, uh, uh, man, it's you know, I'm on the first like this much of it and everything else took place after that you know mm -hmm. uh but uh uh this thing like i say 1979 gary and r said well we might be able to sell 10 or 15 of these every year because who's going to want to spend money on something like this you know and right uh and man it would have been impossible to see this coming and then it's olympic sport now it you can get a, a world championship jersey with the stripes and everything for downhill. And right. Like, uh, uh, and uh, I mean, and I can pretty much say that I invented downhill racing. I mean, if I got any contribution at all, that's the one. That's know? the one there, huh? Yeah, yeah. Because you know, I mean, I thought about building a custom frame, but I didn't build the frame. I talked another guy into it, you know. Right. And, uh, with my idea, but not my execution. But the downhill racing. I really did invent that. And uh, really, it was going to be one time only just to settle some smack talking, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so next time you're having an argument with your buddies, maybe think about, about turning it into a monopoly, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> uh, I I just, uh, I, I can't believe that I had a hand in that because this thing is, I mean, there was a time when I knew every mountain biker in the world, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> Long gone, you know? <laughs> Did you ever win the repack race? Uh, no, I never did. And uh, uh, the the whole one of the purposes of uh, custom frame was uh, to uh, maybe get a secret weapon of some kind, you know. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, even the secret weapon didn't help me because uh, you know I don't know what it is what Joe has or Jerry has, but man, those guys ride away from me. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and I've crashed bikes enough times now that. Uh, on a recreational ride, I'm, I don't ride at hundred percent. I ride like 80%, you know, right, yeah, I gotcha. uh, as, uh, in fact, a couple of weeks ago, I'm riding up the mountain and, uh, I'm getting pretty far up the mountain and, uh, and here's a couple of my friends coming down the hill. And, um, uh, so I quit riding uphill and say, Hey, I'll go down back down with you guys. You know, I got enough uh, climbing here. Let's, let's go down. And this one guy, He's just smoking me on the downhill, and I'm going like, "Wow, that guy's really hanging it out there." One week later, that guy has his clavicle broken in two places and his uh, fractured scapula, and I'm thinking, "Well, he was taking chances 
that I wouldn't have taken then, and he, he paid the price, you know. So, uh, uh, man, I want to ride home from everything now, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, and, you know, I'm not competing. There's not, no reason to, you know, to try to maximize performance. So if you're not, man, you just want to, like, ride home and have fun with the bike. I'm still riding faster than I would have on my old Schwinn because the bike has great brakes and full suspension and all of that stuff, you know? So, uh, every bike I ride is better than the last one I had, you know? Right. Right. But the best one, the best one that you ride is the one you're sitting on. That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> so when you guys, you, you said that you guys called the trail repack cause you had to repack the hubs at the bottom. Right, right. What kind what kind of grease were you using at that time? I actually, uh, uh, we used uh, uh, marine brake lube. That is uh, the lube that you put on uh, on the on the trailer brakes for the trailer. You're back into the water, you know, to like launch your boat. Uh huh. Uh, like a boat trailer, they actually have special grease for those uh, those boat trailer hubs because you're always dipping them in the water, you know. So it took some experience, some some for you guys ever ever got to that point. Uh, yeah, and then uh, also. Uh, uh, this, uh, there was this stuff that Gary called elephant snot, and uh, and if you put your finger in the can and you pull your finger out, you get like a, a six inch string of uh, grease, you know. And, uh, and this stuff, like uh, I don't know what the what the chemical thing is, but and that stuff was pretty tough grease. But didn't matter once you heat it up to uh, you know seven eight hundred degrees. Doesn't matter what kind of grease you're putting in there, it turns into smoke. So uh, and really, it is it, almost a cartoon. You finish the ride. And every smoke pouring off the back of your hub, you know, and uh, uh, time to take it home, you know, and tear it down. You guys wrote it a little different too, man. You guys would be going around like kind of like drifting the corners and and not, I mean, I guess you had to drift the corner because you, you didn't have the bike that could actually stick to the ground. Uh, in fact, uh, a coaster brake, uh, riding on the coaster brake, completely different from riding on uh, a brake with uh, hand brakes. And the reason is that, when you're using a coaster brake, uh, you're putting your weight on the crank, which is one crank length behind uh, the bottom bracket. See what I'm saying? Like, uh -huh. uh, you got to have your crank horizontal, and you're putting the weight on it behind the bottom bracket. Now, with hand brakes, everybody is balanced on the bottom bracket, right? So you're moving, you're moving your your center a little forward of that. Yeah. And so the effect is that you you put more weight on your rear wheel and very little on the front wheel. Uh, when you're with a coaster brake or less, less on the front wheel. But um, the thing is, man, you, you, you're not going to stop the bike. What you're going to do is try to guide that bike, you know, <laughs> uh, and you could get totally sideways. I mean, we were drifting before they, uh, before they, the term really existed, you know, uh, you know, like cars drifting, like to get the thing sideways hundred feet before the turn they have to make, you know, and, uh, uh, and we were pretty much doing that, you know, you get, you got your, your bike's turned before you get to the turn that you got to make it around, you know? So uh, what was the, what was the time that one like back at like race number two compared to what it ended up being by the time you wrapped it up? Uh, the, I think the first guy that went under five minutes, uh, yeah, I think four fifty six was the winning time of the second race. Cause that's the only one we actually have the records for. Right. Uh, so, so it basically we went from about, just about five minutes and you guys took about two years or two how long how many years were you doing actually uh gary rode the rode the record ride uh i think later on that year because, oh really uh, yeah so but, that's the one that uh, stuck. But, uh, but uh like i say 
the first guys that did it weren't, weren't road racers or, or I mean, I, but weren't really good road racers, but Gary is a really good road racer. And like I say, you, that first 150 yards uh, is level and uphill and there's three or four seconds to be made right there, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and it turns out that the guys with a really good hole shot could trim like 10 seconds off, uh, you know, uh, just from getting a good start right out uh, the gate because you guys were starting out on single speeds right and or did you have right. gears when you first started no no we, we were riding geared bikes by then so were uh, you able to choose what your gearing was or was sure. it pretty much and yeah you start you started the lower gear and like shift up when you came over the top uh but uh but really it was a couple of really really good road racers were were the best on the downhill because uh nobody could match their start you know and uh uh and there was one guy, kind of overweight, smoked cigarettes, but he'd been a motorcycle racer and, you know, he knew how to handle. And the amazing thing about him was that he'd lose, you know, several seconds to the really good guys on the start. But once he got over the top, he could make up ground on them, you know. Right, but the problem right. is he gave up too much at the start to catch him, you know. But yeah, yeah, he, yeah. he had a faster faster downhill part, but he didn't have the fast enough start uh uh, and he was the guy that won the second event. But uh, what made you? What made you pick that spot? You know, was uh, it just well, like like instead of starting at the top of that little hill and, and going all the way down? Like why? Why was it that you were like? Was it just because it was like, hey, there's an opening here or like a clearing or? Well, because it was the gnarliest downhill we knew about. But uh, I mean, why, why did you start where you still had a climb? Oh, oh where the starting line was. Yeah, uh, yeah. The reason for the starting line was because. Uh, that's an intersection with another road. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, like you say, it was a one-time goof, you know? And uh, right. uh, and uh, there was a really big rock, like just sticking out of the ground there. And I said, well, look, that rock's never gonna move. So we'll make that the starting line. And at the other end, there's another big rock. And I thought that rock's always gonna be in the exact same spot. So by using those two big rocks for the start and finish, you knew you're gonna have the exact same distance every time, you know? It, uh, just just kind of arbitrary because you never the first time you never even thought about it you know but mm -hmm. after the first time it just got locked into you know the tradition you know so uh and we just started that one place because it was where there was an intersection and uh and the other road uh met this road and, and was the very start of the repack road there you go uh, so, <laughs> uh, somebody uh, asked in the chat if there was anything that you could that you could change through your through your your mountain bike career um all these years that, that you that you've been part of it is there anything that you would well i'd written a better business plan when i because <laughs> because like i say we didn't see it coming we didn't we you know we're thinking kind of a elevated hobby you know right right and then then we're in our rented garage we got people pounding on the door waving cash you know and like uh whoa this thing you know so yeah a business plan would have been a better uh uh you know uh, a better way to start out uh, and, uh, uh, but, uh, really most of it has been just like, uh, uh, reacting to things that happen, uh, mm -hmm. you know, because, uh, there was no way to see it coming and to plan for what really did happen. Um, so, uh, uh, but a business plan on day one would have been a, a big improvement, you know? Yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah. So, so you go down to the uh, the mountain bike hall of fame and you, you volunteer down there. What are some? What are your like your favorite like three bikes that that are in there? 
well, my own bike in there, of course. Uh, and that and, was the number uh, two. That was the number Razor two. Razor number two, yeah. Uh, it, uh, and it's on a uh, really, you know, prominent uh, place uh, in the museum. I really like uh, the Ibis bow tie, which was uh, about 1997. Uh -huh. And uh, and uh, what do you like it, about that bike? Well, it has a, a absolute unique suspension. It's got five inches of travel, which is all accomplished by flexing of a titanium diagonal tube. Mm -hmm. uh, it's got a it's got a shock absorber in there to keep the vibration down, but the whole the whole tube bends, and it's got five inches of travel and uh, I, I presume you're familiar with Ibis, uh, the yeah, Ibis yeah. Company, right? Yeah. Okay. In 1980, there was this guy named Scott Nickel, and he was riding his Cook Brothers Cruiser, and he he rode out to Crested Butte with us, which was the third time that we'd gone out there. And uh, and he had such a gas in Crested Butte riding his Crested, uh, his uh, Cook Brothers Cruiser that on the way back he said, "Man, I got to learn how to build a bike because I'd love to build bikes for this." Well, you have to say that Scott Nickel really did learn how to build bikes because Ibis is one of the preeminent brands, you know, and he's actually the last guy standing from my generation that owns his company outright and does anything he wants with it because everybody else has been bought up or, you know, co-opted or bought by Trek or by Specialized or, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, but Ibis, uh, Scott Nickel owns it. He does anything he likes with it, and he's still a very, very innovative uh, builder from a guy who comes from the rigid bike era. You know? So he actually managed to roll with the times because Tom Ritchie, for example, hates suspension because he's a, you know, he built road frames and has no motorcycle experience, whatever, and uh, and um, so suspension is kind of like a mystery to him. So right, but Scott Nickel. Uh, well, he, he studied it. Joe Breeze studied suspension, and most of those guys have uh, built bikes that, uh, you know, take advantage of all the developments in suspension. And Tom Ritchie, he just builds rigid frames and lets you buy a, a, a RockShox fork or whatever, you know. So, uh, uh, but, uh, yeah, Tom, uh, I mean, uh, Scott Nickel really did stay current all the way till now, you know. And that's, that's really an accomplishment if you're an old guy like me. Yeah. yeah yeah what is that what what is something that stands out to the most to you like uh from from the past that you know one of the the moments that just means the most to you about you know whether it was being put into the hall of fame or making that first poster or getting on the news back in the 70s what, well what uh, actually mount when mountain biking became an olympic sport in 1996 that was 20 years after the day that my friends and I lined up on top of a hill for a one-time goof, you know, mm -hmm. and 20 years from there, an Olympic sport. I mean, uh, and it's like, I mean, it's just freaking astonish astonishing to me that this thing could go from zero to whatever in that kind of time and be accepted as an Olympic sport because, you know, the Tour de France people looked at us like, come on, that's not serious. That's not a real cycling sport you know cyclocross is a real cycling sport but you guys are just hippies riding in the woods you know and uh, <laughs> uh and the fact that we became legitimate enough to be a world championship and uh olympic sport in 
20 years from the first race. I mean, that is an astonishing progression. Yeah, no, that's definitely that's definitely pretty impressive. You know, it, it's definitely a, and and to be part of that and to be part of, you know, what all, all these other great guys like they 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 were all your buddies, you know, and and sure. that, that's just a what what a what a great legacy to leave to leave, you know, uh, of you know, I'm sure that people are going to be riding bikes in the woods for a long time, you know. Well, I was uh, just uh, saying today that. Uh, uh, a few of my friends and I can go to any part of the world and see our own influence on modern culture. And almost nobody gets to change the world in any kind of visible fashion. And most of the people who do fuck it up. So, uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> and we didn't fuck it up, you know. So uh, we, we improved the world, at least uh, from our own standpoint. Uh, it looks like an improvement. I'm not sure that everyone agrees, but, uh, uh, it really feels like we did improve the world. You know? Well, I can tell you that, um, I I'm sure I'm not speaking out of line for anybody that's listening that, that we definitely all appreciate what you've done. Cause I, I can tell you for me, it's, it's always been, you know, I call it single track therapy. You right. go out there and you can get your head straight. It's such a good time to go out there and, and, and be out in nature and hanging out with your friends or even if it's something that you can do with your lady or with your kids. My son's uh, um, in the military right now, and he came home one leave, and, and he, when he came home, he was like, Dad, let's go ride bikes, you know? And, and it's Whoa. those those times of that I had with him when he was young, you know, and we'd get to go out and just, you know, be, be like father and son out in the woods. And that that was meant a lot to me, you know? And, and it's something that I'm sure is going to mean a lot to him as you know and maybe something that he does with his kids as he gets older and and it's just you know so so many people have have had so many good experiences and who knows you know if, if it wasn't for a bunch of crazy long hair hippies <laughs> out in the woods having fun that um that maybe it would have never came about you know i uh, i have a friend who he was the oldest guy in our crowd he actually turned 50 the day before the first repack event he was a retired firefighter. He's 90 now, or 92 now. And um, uh, years after that, and of course became a pretty hardcore mountain biker, well, uh, he, uh, uh, he filmed a, uh, an, a, an insurance uh, commercial for an insurance company, right? Mm -hmm. And here's what, the here's what the commercial is. Here's this guy. He's smoking through the woods. He's storming. He's like, you know, just, you know, banging through the woods. And finally, he stops and he takes off his helmet and you see this guy has long gray hair. And finally, the other rider shows up and he's a guy in his 40s. And the, the second rider says, Dad, ease up on me, would you? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, and by then, the guy was, uh, gosh, he was uh, by then uh, pushing 70, I guess. And uh, no, he was about, he's a... Uh, Late 60s by then. He's now 90 uh, or 92. But uh, uh, later on, I bought a house from this guy. And he said, you know, he was so happy to sell me a house because it was something I could, he could do for me that, you know, to repay what I did for him. Because I put him on a bike and the guy had a lifetime of uh, cycling after the age of 50, you know. So, uh uh, he wasn't the fastest downhiller, but, uh, but we could, you know, 
when you're 30 years old, a 50 year old guy that's out there riding with you, man, that's like, that guy's old, you know, I'm looking yeah. back at that pretty far, you know, but, uh, um, anyway, uh, uh, it was really kind of cool that, uh, I did this for this guy and then, uh, whatever, 15, 18 years later, he sold me a house, uh, and he was happy to do that because I did something for him, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's awesome. So, uh, uh, let's talk about we're, we're just about hitting two hours here and i want to talk about your book real quick so okay. you have have a book it's called fat tire fire yes Re repack in the birth of mountain biking yeah you're looking at it right there aren't you? yeah yeah checking it out on, on yeah. amazon.com anybody wants yep. to go check it out you can definitely do that i'll put the link and show more whenever i go back and edit the uh the the, the stuff on the bottom so Perfect. you can go ahead and hit hit over to uh Amazon pick up the hardcover for looks like just a, just a hair over twenty bucks. Yeah, um, it's like uh, I can't believe that uh, that my publisher uh, can put that kind of a price on it because the book weighs four pounds. I mean, this thing is, you know, I couldn't believe what a good job my publisher did with the book because I I send them computer files, you know, what do those look like? They look mm -hmm. like computer files, and when it came back, I just about cried because it is the most beautiful book I could ever imagine seeing that I personally wrote and I. Not ghostwritten. I wrote every word, uh, and uh, anything I see in the bookstore that looks like that costs sixty or seventy bucks. You know, uh -huh. so is there there are a bunch of pictures in it, or is it just oh man, there are uh, what is that? I think uh, one hundred seventy five Im images in there, uh -huh. uh, and I have access to images that nobody else has. Uh -huh. I mean, uh, uh, because man, uh, I got images from the very first rides. You know, so. Uh, uh, and all the reviews are, nobody's reviewed this badly. If, if you look at the Amazon reviews, there's one guy that says, well, it could have used more pictures. More pictures? 175 <laughs> pictures. How many do you want? But anyway, uh, uh, it's got uh, all but three or four or five-star reviews on Amazon. So, uh, so yeah. So oh, there it is. guys that, uh, look here, let me, let me put it up on the screen for those, those people that are, yeah. that are watching right now. Um, there's a picture here on the front. It's got some guy in a in a yellow baseball hat, some some gardening gloves. It looks like some some really old school knee pads and elbow pads and uh, jeans and. And, and by the way, like, those those are my army boots. Yeah, I was just gonna say that they look like ar army issued combat boots there, yep. and and that's you. I take it. That's me. Yep. <laughs> just cruising Mom, who down are you the putting repack. on the cover of your book. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> it says the uh, the forward is written by Joe Breeze as well. That's correct. I wouldn't have anyone else do it, you know, because, uh, you know, I, I gave Joe the manuscript. I said, uh, would you do the fact checking for me? Comes back with like a hundred post-it notes, you know? Oh yeah. <laughs> okay. So, uh, and, uh, and, uh, Joe, of course has been one of my dearest friends for 45 years, you know, and, uh, uh we shared so many adventures. Uh, we went to England together last year. Uh, we went out to Crested Butte for the 40th anniversary of our first ride out there just this last year uh and uh it was an awesome adventure went over i never thought i'd stand up the top of pearl pass again ever in my life but there i was with my best friend joe breeze you know so right. uh great guy right on man well hey i can't tell you thanks enough uh for for sitting down and spending the last two hours with 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 me and and all the people online 
those of you guys that are watching, if you enjoyed this episode, please hit the thumbs up button. It definitely helps uh, helps get get this get a little more traction and leave some comments, please. Um, if you if you if you mind doing that, I'm sure uh, Charlie might even end up taking a look at some of those. I know he chats on uh, some other other um, mountain biking websites pretty regularly, right. so I wouldn't doubt it if he showed up and, and, and read what you guys typed out here on, on uh, YouTube. I'll send him a link to the the video as well. Um, <clears throat> Everybody that, that threw up a super chat while we were talking, I really appreciate it, man. That's that's the stuff that keeps this channel going. Um, if you haven't subscribed to the channel and you like the content, please hit the subscribe button. That that uh, that definitely definitely makes me happy. Uh, the more I see that grow. Um, outside of that, make sure you, you show up next week, five o'clock, five p.m. PST. Check it out. If not, catch it on the podcast. You can do that on Spotify or. Google or Apple. Um, if you're at one of those spots and you get a chance, le leave a review, hopefully a five-star one. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and and I appreciate that. So I want you guys to remember one thing and one thing only. It only takes a bike to be a biker. So get out and be one. Thanks a All lot, right. Charlie. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. <laughs>